Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. This is our third week in this series on evil, and next Sunday morning we'll be finishing it up with our last week. Two weeks ago, I offered a framework for us using this language of uncreation, creation, and decreation. Uncreation, or the uncreated state, if you will, what we would often just refer to as nothing, uh, is represented in the scriptures by darkness, by chaotic waters, by barren land in Genesis 1-2. Today, again, we just think in terms of nothing or non-existence. Creation, on the other hand, is the work of God, and it's always good, because God is the fullness of goodness in himself, and that's all he does is what is good. And humans are created to partner with God in the movement from uncreation into creation, to cultivate the barren land and bring about Eden blessing in the world at God's bidding and power and doing, to share in the good work of God. Decreation, the opposite movement, is a way of talking about evil because it is against the goodness that God establishes. It seeks to take God's good creation and drag it back into the watery abyss. Decreation is not a substance. Evil is not a being or an entity. It's a movement towards an absence of what God creates. And last week we unpacked the language of the will of God or the purpose of God. That God's will and purpose, again, it's always good. It's always life-giving. It's always abundant and flourishing and creative. And that uncreation and that the movement of decreation is in one sense, it's a lack of or an absence of will. If we understand that in the beginning, it's just God's will of goodness and, and, and life. So when we talk like last week about things like tsunamis and earthquakes, we recognize them not as the will of God, but rather the enslavement of creation to powers of death. The creation is in bondage to decay and decreation. Today, we're going to delve into the topic of evil in regards to spiritual beings. And for us to wrestle with this today, we need to, as we have been the last few weeks, reimagine ancient Near Eastern cosmology. When these ancient peoples in the ancient uh, Middle uh, Near East looked up at the sky, they did not necessarily think that they were looking out into space with planets and stars, these vast masses of burning incandescent gas in the midst of a galaxy. The big blue thing above in their imagination was often talked about as being a solid A solid that would be maybe a thin sheet or maybe an expanse of water above. And if you traveled high enough, you'd pass through that barrier and you'd end up in the heavenly realm. Think, again, Tower of Babel, for instance. If you traveled high enough, you'd enter into where the gods and the other spiritual beings resided. Really tall mountains, then, for instance, um, are bore significance, religious, uh, religious significance because they were closer to that heavenly realm, closer to the gods. The sun, moon, and stars, then, were not thought of as space rocks or incandescent gas, but were imagined as light from spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. For the Israelites, though, 
They specifically did not see these various lights as gods, as the surrounding cultures like the Babylonians and the Canaanites thought. But they were thought of and talked about, which is very strange for us today, as creatures, spiritual creatures or sky rulers in the heavenly realm. They were part of God's creation, and as all that God does and creates is good, they were created good. And this wasn't just in ancient Israel, like in the days of Moses. Even Paul in the New Testament talks this way in his letter to the church in Corinth. He uses creature language for sun, moon, and stars. He's talking about the resurrection because there's this question about, like, what kind of body are we going to be raised with? And he says, birds have one type of flesh. Land animals have another type of body. Fish, a different kind of flesh. The sun has a different body. The moon has a different body. And each star differs from star. He lists sun, moon, and stars in a list of creatures, humans and animals and things. Why this matters for us today is because the ancient authors of the scriptures want us to see the lives of human creatures and the lives of spiritual creatures as a sort of mirrored existence or a parallel existence. And this starts with this language on page one of Genesis. On day four, God sets out to create two things, we're told. Two things, a greater light and a lesser light. So we're thinking, all right, what's the two things he's going to make? He makes the sun and he makes the moon. And he gives them the purpose to rule, to govern. We don't think of sun and moon as rulers. But again, the ancient Israelites, like their ancient neighbors, imagine these things as sort of sky rulers. These are things that were given authority from God to govern the skies. We're told that he makes two things, sun and moon, and then all of a sudden we get this sentence, and he also made the stars. I thought he set out to make two things. Why this third? It's like an additional unique creation. God makes two and then and also. Day five has something similar. God sets out to make two things. Things to fill the sky above, the birds, and the fish that will fill the sea. And he does so. But then we're told that he also makes a third thing. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, the tanin, that sea dragon, this creature that represents uncreation in the symbolic imagination of the ancient world. And its domain is the sea. And so we have stars, tanin. And then day six is a bit different, but we get a very unique special creation event on day six. Because God doesn't just make land creatures show up and the land produce creatures. He himself gets dirty with his hands and makes humanity to be his image. And they are to rule. Right? They're to rule. And they're to rule over the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, and all of the creatures that crawl along the land. We're following along, this should be surprising to us because we would expect the sky rulers to be the one given authority over everything, right? They're so much higher up, they're way up nearer to God's realm, and they're looking down. They should be the ones ruling over the birds and the sky and the fish of the sea and the land animals, not these dirt creatures. But God chooses dirt creatures called humans that he makes, and he gives them authority to rule over everything. 
except for this passing of time, as he mentions with the sky rulers. David in Psalm 8 reflects on this very reality when he says, what are humans? Right? He's looking up at the sky at night. He's like, what are humans that you care for them? We're so small. We're so insignificant. You've made us a little lower than those sky rulers, the heavenly beings, but you've given us dominion over the whole works of your hands, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the land animals. This is a startling reality that God makes humans to rule over his world and partner with them. And so on page one, the existence of spiritual beings and human beings are put on parallel with each other. They're both created by God. They're both given authority to rule, but in different ways and in different realms in many respects. And this parallel existence continues on throughout the story of Genesis. What we see on day three, or excuse me, page three, if you will, is a snake show up. But this snake seems to know things. And notice the text never actually calls it a spiritual being. It never calls it specifically the Satan as a title. We're just told it's a snake. But the snake seems to know stuff about God's plans and purposes, about what God has ordained in the world, almost like it's a sky ruler showing up to deceive, as, again, we have often talked about it. Maybe it's jealous that humans were given a greater rule than itself. And this image of the snake is significant for us because this symbolic representation should remind us rather of that language of the tanin. Snakes are imagined as coming out of the ground, right? And what's underneath the ground in this ancient cosmology? Well, the underworld and darkness. And as we saw on a slide a couple of weeks ago, we had that stone column, that kuduru, got the heavenly realms, the earthly realm, and then there's those foundational pillars and all this water and that sea dragon underneath. What is underneath but the realm of that chaos monster? So the serpent is deeply connected to this language of the tanin. And again, the way that theologians have talked about this is a spiritual being is showing up It's taking on a costume, if you will, of the chaos dragon. It's taking upon itself the power of non-existence, and it is willing it, using its volition in order to undermine God's creation, to deceive humanity and drag it away from God's goodness. And the creature succeeds. And notice the parallel as this creature, this spiritual being, rebels, so humanity also rebels. The curse of the serpent also runs parallel. The serpent is cursed and the land that produces food for humanity is also cursed. The fall, if you will, again, runs as a mirror image of these two and they coincide together again in the minds of many theologians still today. Shortly after we hear about what? But Cain and Abel. We're told that sin It's imagined like this crouching monster, like a chaos monster of the land, and it desires to pounce and attack and destroy Cain. So we should be thinking, Cain, watch out, you're going to be killed. But when it takes hold of Cain, because Cain doesn't master it, it doesn't kill Cain. Instead, Cain becomes a crouching monster who deceives with his speech towards his brother. He takes upon the dragon like a costume and drags his brother into non-existence. 
possibly again out of jealousy, not unlike many imagine the spiritual being deceiving humanity out of jealousy. In the days of Noah, there's another parallel between spiritual beings and human beings, this weird story we're not going to get into today about procreation, and it results in immense violence. And then Noah and his family get out of the boat, and there's another strange story that results in more violence. We're told in the curses that the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring are going to be at enmity between one another, right? Another parallel for us. And so we should be watching in Genesis thinking, where is the serpent's offspring? Where do we find the serpent's offspring in the story of Genesis? And we watch two brothers are born, Jacob and Esau, twins. And Jacob comes out grabbing onto the heel of his brother. And what did God say? The serpent will crush the heel. Jacob looks like, from his birth, an offspring of the serpent. His entire life in that story at the beginning of Genesis, it's like he lives with the costume of the dragon on, causing all sorts of disorder, stealing from his age-blind father, stealing from his famished brother, bringing destruction in his family. These parallel connections between spiritual beings and human beings, between sky rulers and God's image bearers that rule his creation, is a reminder to us that there is more going on than meets the eye in the world. And we see this also in Jesus' day with Peter, right? Peter says something that if I think we take to heart, we might also say as well. When Jesus is talking about being crucified and Peter takes him aside, he's like, Let's not do that. That's, that's not a good idea. And Jesus says, get behind me, the Satan. Right? There's parallels going on here of what's happening for Peter and what's happening elsewhere. There are, as Paul calls them in our reading today, cosmic forces of darkness at work in the world. Cosmic forces of darkness. There are spiritual beings that were created good. Even the ones or the ones that we attach that title to of the Satan or the devil, they were created good. They were not inherently evil. They're not the essence of evil in themselves. They are good creatures that took upon themselves the power of the dragon. And it's horrifying as they seek to drag creation back into non-existence. Last week, I talked about catastrophes, again, like floods and earthquakes. And floods and earthquakes are, in one sense, a lack of will. They don't have meaning or purpose. They are against the purpose and will of God when they bring about death, right? If we understand that in creation, God's will and purpose is life and abundance, wherever there is death, it's not the will of God. These things, like tsunamis in the ocean, for instance, they lack minds. They lack volition. And they can be horrifying in the destruction that they bring. How much more horrifying when this lack of will, when this anti-purpose and meaning is taken upon itself by a being that has a will and a volition. By a spiritual being or beings that think and plan, and wield the power of non-existence. Spiritual beings that put on the costume of the dragon become truly horrifying because they intentionally seek to drag creation away from God's will and purpose. They strive to and try to pull away humanity from what it was created for. 
This means intentional acts of things like deception, false promises of power and goodness, which is what the serpent poses to humanity in the garden. And we saw this parallel even in the hymn we just sang a moment ago. It starts out talking about a demon crying out, and then it moves into things like greed, right? Things that seem maybe more benign to us than something like demon possession. And these spiritual beings choose something that in their eyes, again, looks good, and then humanity in parallel does the same thing through these lies and deceptions. We choose what we think is good, but it often is destruction, This, again, is a being taken upon itself the power of non-being. It is becoming a cause and a source of decreation by using its will and purpose to unravel the very will of God. And these parallel stories in the scriptures are a reminder to us that there is something beyond us that is endangering us. And these parallel stories help us unhinge our expectations of spiritual evil. We often think, at least I know I have for a long time, think about spiritual evil in terms of like demon possession. Like there's all the natural evil out in the world, but then there's those few moments where something is truly demonic. And it's usually got to be something immensely horrifying like genocide. And we step back and say, that is just the depth of demonic evil. But the scriptural authors want us to see that humanity and its actions are much more connected to the parallel of the spiritual realm that God created. And so disease in Luke's account is imagined as somehow connected to spiritual forces. This doesn't discount what we know about viruses. This doesn't mean we ignore what we know about pathogens and bacteria. But we are invited that in the decreation at work in the world to imagine that there are other forces at work behind these things. And we can't pin it down and say, here's the direct link in some way. It's just that they're there. Paul, for instance, at the end of his letter to the church in Rome, he talks about people causing divisions, putting some obstacles in front of other people. I think we all know someone who's caused divisions. And maybe we've even done that in small ways or big ways with our words or our actions, putting an obstacle in someone's way. And Paul talks about this, and then he launches into this deep imagination of language from the opening of Genesis. He tells the people to be wise about good and innocent about evil, which sounds like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Be wise about good and innocent about evil. In the midst of deceptive and flattering speech, sounds like the serpent, right? Because the God of peace will soon crush the Satan under your feet. Paul sees the work of the Satan somehow connected to the people that are causing divisions. This thing that we might not necessarily bat an eye at and say, oh, it's just so-and-so, you know how they are. Or we may even say that about ourselves at times, right? This is by no means meant to diminish things like demonic possession, like we see in our text for today from the Gospel account. Rather, it is meant to expand our imaginations to see that working in the world are spiritual forces of evil. Or, as Paul puts it, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. Humans aren't the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly realms. When we do not have this framework of being able to imagine something in the background, imagining cosmic powers of darkness, when we lose sight of in our imagination spiritual forces of evil at work all over in the world and even in our own lives, we are actually in danger of running against the goodwill and purpose of God. This framework, this widening of our imaginations actually allows us by God's grace to be compassionate towards our fellow human beings. What I mean by that is this. If we look at our fellow human beings and think of them as the enemy, then we will treat our fellow human beings as enemies. If we are convinced that our fight, our deepest struggle that we are called into in Jesus somehow involves fighting against flesh and blood, then we end up taking up the costume of the dragon. And we end up wielding that power of non-existence against other human beings. We end up putting ourselves in league with the spiritual forces of evil by trying to deceive with our mouths or flatter with our lips. We try to do what is good in our own eyes, and yet we have to look at the scriptures and see what was good in Cain's eyes. Well, he murdered his brother. He thought that was good. Get him out of the way if he's got more blessing than me. Or we may abuse like Abraham and Sarah did to Hagar. Or we may hoard up resources and then demand payment of those to the starving masses like Joseph did in Egypt, rather than generously throwing open the gates to give food like Yahweh promises. But if our struggle, if our deepest fight isn't against humans... If we have the framework to look at other people and to look at our city and to look at our country and the countries of the world, to look at every human and see behind all of it a deeper problem, these cosmic powers of darkness, that there are spiritual creatures that God made good that have chosen to wield the power of non-existence, then we can be compassionate in a much-needed way towards every human being. We need to be rescued, right? It's something that we share in common with every human being. We need to be rescued because whether we see it or not, whether we recognize it or not, there are powers and authorities at work trying to deceive us into thinking that we know what's good in our own eyes. There are powers and forces of darkness that are seeking to drag the cosmos back into its watery beginning. We have a God who has promised Victory, though. That, as Paul puts it in his letter to the church in Colossae, that by Jesus' crucifixion, he has triumphed over the powers and authorities, and by his death on the cross, he has put them all to open shame. God, you see, is not endangered by spiritual evil. As I mentioned before, he is not threatened by decreation because he's not created. He is not at risk at all of being dethroned from his position of being God. The work of spiritual beings who take upon themselves the dragon costume are a serious threat to us and a serious threat to the created order that God established. But God has promised and has chosen to crush the head. Think about that. This is not to his benefit. 
God does not stand to gain anything personally by doing this. Again, he's not endangered by evil. It is entirely out of his commitment to his goodness, entirely out of his commitment to his compassion for us all and his creatures that he is doing so. He intervenes for us, and he has promised to deliver us by one day getting rid of the danger of that sea dragon, getting rid of the threat of decreation in all of its forms by conquering the forces of darkness, and as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, by reconciling all things in himself, things in the heavenly realm, things in the earthly realm, by making peace through his blood. Until the fullness of that day, we fight like Paul invites us to fight. We put on armor, not the dragon costume. We put on ourselves things like trust and hopeful longing. We put on righteous living and patience and humility and kindness. And we cling to the promises of the word of God. That is the armor that we are given. We put on God's God's armor in this way through trust and hope. And through clinging to his promises rather than taking upon and wielding the power of destruction and non-existence. And we live lives of compassion as we wait for his victory to be fully revealed. This topic of spiritual evil inevitably pushes us into the realm of humanity as you can probably already see today with these parallel stories. And so next week as we finish up this series we'll take up the topic of humanity and evil and especially these matters of culpability in our relationships with others. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.